scripture reading this morning will be from the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I, I, I love, we've got a Sunday. We haven't had one of these in a while, but we've got Mark C. leading David. Uh, sorry, Mark K. leading singing. Mark C. Uh, reading scripture for us. And if you've never gotten confused about that, then you're better than I am. So uh, we're glad to have both of y'all here with us. And thank you very much for leading us in worship. He was shocked. He was perplexed. And I will tell you that at least one reason that he was shocked and perplexed is that he thought he had taken care of the most important things. He thought he had checked all the right boxes. He thought that he had it all in order and that Jesus was going to in some way or another affirm you've done it all right and everything is good except that Jesus loved him too much to leave him where he was. He loved him too much to let him think that he had it all together all by himself. He said, I want you to depend on God in a way that you never thought you could. In a way that people throughout our history, and he doesn't quote the Bible, but he might be pointing to Abraham who was told, take your one and only son and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Or maybe like Gideon, who was told, uh, you know, that's way too many guys if we're going to win this battle and God's going to, I want you to be dependent on me, not on your numbers, so let's get rid of all of them and let's have 300 defeat an army of 10,000. Or maybe it was like David, who when he walked up against a giant had nothing but a sling and a few stones in his pocket. And there was going to be no doubt that it wasn't how great David was, but it was how great God was that made a difference. And on this day, Jesus loved this man so much that he said, I want, I want to invite you to something more. I want, you to I want to invite you to a life that understands how dependent on, for everything it is and we are and we need to be on God. He was shocked because he thought he had all the answers. He was shocked because he thought he had it all together. I love, I love to ask people, how did, what did his face look like? What did it, was it anger? How dare you? Because isn't sort of that the way we react sometimes when God kind of pokes at the core of who we are? 
the core of our sense of I am me and don't mess with it. And God kind of presses that and says, I want that to be turned my direction. I want that to be filled with me. And we kind of react, wait a minute, God. Don't you know I've been on your side? Don't you know I'm the one who's standing up for you? Don't you know I'm a good boy, good person? Was it mad? Was it truly shock? Was it fear? Was it a sense of great mystery? I don't understand how you could ask anybody to do this. And at least one way that he would have accounted for this question is you need to understand that so much of the ability of the next generation to be stable and secure was the idea of passing on what the family, who, what the family had to the next generation. By the way, not that much different than we are today. For those of us who have the opportunity not to rent housing for all our lives, but instead to own a home, the ability for that to be something that we can pass along to our children becomes very, very important. And Jesus doesn't say give away all your money. He says sell all you have. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's my children and my grandchildren you're messing with there. And what Jesus would say over and over in other settings and in other ways is, yes, do you want them to live in a nice house or do you want them to know me? He reaches and touches him. I've mentioned this before, I'm fairly certain. I know I have in Bible class, I've probably mentioned it here in sermons before. But a few years back we had a movie night and we watched a movie called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. If you've not seen it, I believe it's on Netflix as we speak. And I would, I would encourage you, it's worth, worth the effort. It is not a great movie, do not hear me say that. It is a good movie, and I think you'll be blessed by watching it. But in that, they're enacting uh, Jesus' story. They're doing a play, and on the night of the performance, um, the character Gavin Stone, who's playing Jesus, comes to this scene, and the rich man comes up to him. And as he's acting out the scene, he recognizes that Jesus is talking to him. He's the young man that has it all together. He's the one who had everything that anybody could ever want. And, of course, the, the person playing, the young man, simply says, no, no I, he, he does his best to have a shocked face and start to walk away. And in one of the most powerful ways, the person playing Jesus says, no, wait. Because what he saw was himself turning away from Jesus and the way that he threw out his life of success had put Jesus away. He didn't even acknowledge that he was part of the thing. And he, no, wait, wait, you, you don't understand what you're walking away from. And to a certain extent, the reason we don't make this our daily reading, this is not the piece of scripture that we choose to memorize. It's not the one that we... we want to engage in is because at some level we find ourselves standing there, don't we? And we hear Jesus talking to us and saying, I need you to be holy and fully mine. We're so quick to quote, greatest command, love the Lord your God. Say it with me, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Good Greek translation, well done. And yet sometimes we think, 
Jesus, you can't have all of me. To a certain extent, we, we sang the song um, Oceans this morning, and I don't know if you pay attention to the words. It's got some difficult notes and rhythms, so it may be that we get absorbed in those. But the words are to take us to that place where Jesus is standing in the water and Peter is standing in the boat. And Jesus says, come to me. And it's exactly the same kind of scenario as this man that Jesus meets, probably in a marketplace somewhere. He says to Peter, you're really going to depend on me because there is no way you're walking on this water unless it's through God's power and because you love me. It's a question that he asks all of us. Why give the title of this series that we're engaging in? Maybe, again, it's a question that we don't ask very often. But I believe that when we read it in its context, when we answer it with, from where the Bible answers the question, it has the same sort of intensity that a question like, why worship? Or why love? You see, it needs an answer. It needs to have an answer in your heart. And, and again, it has become, and, and man, it, it just has become so easy to set up your online giving and just kind of, you don't even see it anymore, those kinds of things. It's become so easy to just say, this is, this is not part of my relationship with God or things like that. And maybe that's why even more at this time, in this stage in, in history, it's even more important for this discernment period for us to stop and say, what is it that I told TDECU to send a check to the church once a week for? And is that what I want to be giving? More importantly... Not just what I want to give, but why. In fact, what you give needs to be a reflection of why we give. And we need to have a better answer than maybe most of us when we were parents. Why? 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 And what's the answer? Because I said so is exactly right, but... We probably need to have a bigger answer than that. And by the way, God says, I said so. But he doesn't leave it as a trite answer. Because anything he asks us to do, he asks us to do because he wants to bless us. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants to bring us to a better place. Not necessarily a place of more financial wealth, not necessarily a place of higher status, not necessarily a place of more power, but to a better place, God's better place. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And don't do it reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, because I told you so, right? Or under compulsion. For God loves... Say it with me. God loves a cheerful giver. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? A wonderful picture. Maybe not a picture that we connect to all the time. I, I, I do love, you know, sometimes it's that first time that a child comes forward for kids' gift, right? And they don't, I mean, it doesn't matter how many times they've seen somebody put something in. Although I, I would say that the shorter you are, the harder it is to see what's going on up here. Not my fault. Parents, 
I would love to replace chairs because you've put your children up on the back of the one in front of you and they've stood there so they could see what's going on. I'm, I'm have, I will sponsor the replacement of those chairs because I want your kids engaged. But they come down here to the front and I have to put it in there? I have to let go of it? You've never given me a $5 bill before. Why am I going to put it in here? And, and by the way, parents, if you're really not prepared, I see 20s going in there. And I know that's not because that's a tenth of what they've got, but it's because you ain't got nothing else in your pocket. <laughs> and by the way, somebody say, hallelujah. <laughs> Joaquin, down in the Dominican, will spend your $20 even if it was a mistake and you didn't intend to put it in there. And he'll spend it on really, really good things. Why does God love that cheerful giver? I've seen children cry when they had to let go of coins to put in the plate. I've heard testimonies from people whose parents literally pried their fingers off to put it in there. The word used for cheerful here is not a real common word in the Bible. It oftentimes is in Proverbs. It's used to describe the, the favorable or blessed life that one can have, or at least... If I live in God's will, I can, I can anticipate these, this favor, this blessing, this happiness, this joy, kind of thing like that. Interestingly, the word hilarious. Our word, in, and by the way, it goes back to Greek roots and Latin roots and all these old roots. That word hilarious comes from this word. How many people do you see at Christmas when they walk up to the... Salvation Army. And by the way, I'm not trying to say anything political here at all. How many people, when they walk up to an opportunity to give, drop it in there and go, <laughs> Just try it. Act like you're dropping something and then laugh as big as you can laugh. No, you're not participating. Sorry. That was a good laugh, but I need you to act like you're dropping. Everybody drop it. Ready? There you go. I happen to have rung bells before, and there are very few people. They'll smile. Something will erupt in laughter. And at some level, I think what God wants, God's good, is for us to walk into every opportunity that we have to give, including that which we give to church. But what I can give of my time and what I can give of my talents, what I can give of my person, and yes, what I can give of my finances, and just be so hilariously joyful and cheerful about the that God could use what I can give to bring glory to God. It ought to make us elated. We want to be engaged in Scripture, and so I want to take us this Sunday to Deuteronomy chapter 26. So if you have a Bible with me, I'd encourage you to open it up there. It may be even that you want to mark your Bible there. Uh, it may be that you want to leave your marker in Mark chapter 10 because in reality what you want to do is spend the week wrestling with this man whose face changes and who walks away grieving. But I invite you to Deuteronomy chapter 26 as well. Let's read together. Before we start reading, I want to be sure and put us in context here. Moses is writing to the children of Israel who have been 40 years in the wilderness who've lived 40 years really without a home, who are now about to step into the promised land. And, and God has promised he's going to do good, big things with them in this promised land, that something that bigger than they could imagine is going to happen when, we get, when they get there. 
And as he comes to the end of that sermon, these are the words that he says. When you've come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you will take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you will... You shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Really interesting language in Deuteronomy because it's always pointing them forward to something that isn't real yet. I think at some level its authenticity is emphasized by the way it doesn't say go to Jerusalem or go to Bethel or something like that. It says wherever, wherever that winds up being, you go there. You should go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And then when the priest takes the basket from your hand, sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien Few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with the terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. Just for a minute... I just want you to be thankful that the main liturgy that I engage you in is, and the whole church said, because all you have to remember to do is say, because this was what they were to say. They needed to memorize it. They needed to be ready. You didn't get to carry notes, right? You, you, you were going to come to the altar. You were going to say, God brought us into this land, and because he brought us here, here's the first fruits. And then, he, then you've got to recite all the history. This is where we started, and this is where we are today. Aren't you glad I don't make you do that? Would we be very good at it? You're going to set it down before the Lord your God. And you're going to bow down. This is a posture of worship here. The lo- bow before the Lord your God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty. You're going to have a party. Party with good barbecue and wonderful food. All the bounty of the Lord your God has given you and your house. Two emphases that I want to bring out of this. First of all, this is Moses pointing forward to a time when they've stepped into the promised land. And it's not just about temporally, I want you to look forward to that, but I want you to think in terms of a time when God has fulfilled his promise to you. God has promised that he would do this, he's promised this for generations, and you get to be the generation that experiences the fulfillment of that promise, being brought into the promised land. God making a way for you to settle down in this place and making the soil such that it would produce a harvest. We uh, 
We don't relate to the promise of a land very well in modern times. That's not what we do. If we live in a place, we, we tell a story about armies coming and conquering, don't we? We say our settlers came and they, they, they made, made the, the place a habitable place and those kinds of things. But for Israel, there was nothing about where they wound up that they could do anything but say, Wow, God. Say that with me real quickly. Wow, God. And I would say to you the best correlation that we have what I would like you to kind of make as a, a part of how you see this kind of language from the Old Testament and make it part of your world today is that we live on this side of the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? You and I are participators in a kingdom that nobody prior to that death, burial, and resurrection, nobody prior to Jesus would have ever realized we would come. We are filled with a spirit. We have the opportunity every day not to sit down and say, oh, how many rules do I need to check off the list today? But instead we get to say, I have faith in Christ and His Spirit fills me and I will live every moment in every way to praise and worship and glorify Him. Amen? That is the land of promise that we have come into. And the question is, what is the first fruit of our hearts and our lives that we want to lay on the altar for God. Because that's the second emphasis that I want to make. If they recognize what God did, and, and you need to hear that, that, those words that they're supposed to say when they come, right? Maybe we need to start doing that when we, before we have the prayer for our, our financial gifts and giving back to God. We need to say something like, we recognize that we would not be in this place of forgiveness and freedom if it weren't for Jesus Christ. And then we could go back and we could say, and before I give it, I want to be sure you know that I came from all these people who didn't know Jesus and now I'm here and I know Jesus and I'm thankful for that. Maybe. Somehow or another, I don't think that would fly in our setting. But in your heart of hearts, I hope you hear. Total dependence. I am only here and I am only where I am because of what God's doing for me and has done for me. And so I lay this gift down and I want it to be the first and the best. There's a powerful connection here because this idea of first fruits comes up over and over again, particularly in these first five books. And one could maybe think that we're talking about, oh, we get into the land and the first time we harvest we do that, but that is not the way it is. Every year you're to bring these first fruit harvests. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, there is this, this moment to take a deep breath. Before we start telling you how you're going to live your life, and as we end what it is to know who God is and to re revere Him in your life, we take this deep breath called Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you might say, what a strange thing to ask people to do. Why stop? Except in a world where almost everything that you lived on was not because you went to H-E-B that, -E that day and got it, and not because you turned on the tap to get the water, and not because you had done, adjusted the temperature to whatever was comfortable that day. Instead, it was a life that was lived where what you got that day was dependent on the work that you put in that day. And now God says, stop. 
and depend on me. There was a time in Israel's history where they were told, yes, I know there's a sea in front of us, but we're going to step out into the sea and we're going to walk across. And there wasn't any way that anybody was going to swim that far and there was no way that anybody was going to build that bridge. We're only going to be able to do that because God would do it. It was a moment where they had to be completely dependent on God. And now we come to the harvest. We don't have a whole lot of farmers among us. But one of the things that farmers are very attuned to is when it's ripe, we need to harvest it now. Because when it is ripe, it is at incredible risk. And God says, I want you to go out and I want you to harvest. And then I want you to stop. And I want you to bring that to the place that I'll designate. And I want you to give that to me. Wait, God, what? there's clouds on the horizon. We, need to, we, we really need to do this first. Oh, wait, God, I, you know, it, it, it's getting worse every day. Meaning the, the crop is not as good as it will be tomorrow. So I know that you want us to be filled and with plenty. So we're going to, no, take the first and stop. And bring it to me. And trust that I will make what I leave in your hands more wonderful and full and blessed, nutritious, helpful as it can possibly be. More than you could imagine. It reminds them to trust not what they can do with their own hands. Not what you and I can do with our own efforts but to trust in what God will do. So the first answer to why give, bottom line is, we answer because we trust God. Can you say it with me? Because we trust God. I'm going to do it one more time, except I'm going to ask the question, why give? And for Israel 3,000 years ago and for us, one way that you help the whole person grow are the practices of personal economy. You see, this isn't about trusting God with our finances. This is about trusting God with everything that we are. This is about saying, I recognize that I am less without you. This is about saying it doesn't matter how much there is at my disposal. It means nothing unless it is dedicated to and is fully entrusted in what God wants to do. So why do we send our children up here to give? And yes, one of the reasons is, is it's just way fun. Somebody say amen. But it is intended to be something that helps Families do the practice of saying, you are going to join us in our giving. And the end of that lesson is not, we give a little money. The end of that lesson is, we give everything to God. Amen? And we will trust Him 
to care for us. It's one of those steps that says, I want to trust him. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling a parable. And in, and in a powerful way, it kind of illustrates this answer to why give. Starting with verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with, and there's this phrase that kind of comes up in text all the time, true riches. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, by the way, who's the owner of everything that we have? God is. If you've not been trustworthy with that property, who will give you property of your own? See, faithfulness in this little thing, faithfulness in this little thing is intended not for us to check a box that says, ah, I did it. In fact, God, you're really going to be proud of me. I did 11% this year. Woo! That's not the point. The point is, God, thank you for giving me an opportunity to give because I want to grow in being your person of faith more every single day. So how can we be a people who are letting giving shape our trust in God? First of all, we need to see our finances as integral to our faith. To the idea of trusting God, somehow or another, our finances fit into that because it seems to come up, Old Testament, law, prophets, Jesus, and the letters. It's all there. It is integral to our faith. I might ask you, when you look at your debit card or your credit card, or you look at that screen that has your personal finances that you manage, and boy, now it's on your, on your phone now. Doesn't that scare you to death? Got all those <laughs> records there. When you look at that, you see it as something sacred. Something God's entrusted to you. And something that has an impact on your faith. Do you see it the same way that you might open the Bible? Do you see it the same way that you might pick up communion elements? God, I want you in me, is what we say of those communion elements. I want to remember you. Do we open our pocketbook and say, God, I want to remember you? It's bigger than money. Secondly, we need to understand the power of first fruits in our own economy and my economy. We need to be a people who are budgeting. Because if you're not spending your money on purpose, your money is driving you to places that you don't want to go. And if you've been one of those people who've moved from not budgeting to budgeting, you know that reality. And when we budget, the place that God says I need to be put is not... I'll do 10% of whatever, whatever's left over after I'm done with all my expenses. It is the portion that I want to give on the front end. And if that's 1% or 5% or 10% or 50%, and there are some very generous givers here, whatever it is, it's, that's what I've decided and it's not what's left over, it's where I start. 
third, we need to be a people. If we're going to let giving grow and shape our trust in God, we need to grow to regard all we have as resources to be used for and by God. All of it. If you got a car that gets you down the road, it's about ministry. If you got a house that keeps the water out and the cool air in, somebody say hallelujah, then it's for God to use. If you have a wonderful savings account, it's for God to use. I want to be sure. God wants you to care for your family. I'm not saying that he doesn't. God wants to bless you and, and wants you to create good things on this earth. But don't ever think that it's not God's. Well, that's mine. No, it's all God's. There's this powerful sense in which this idea of treasure in heaven, treasures with God or God's treasures, and the question might be, what do we need to let go of to have more Jesus? Wasn't that what he was asking the young, the, the man that he met? What do you need to let go of to have more Jesus? So see, it's not a message about just about finances. It's a message about faith. Because what we proclaim from the text and what we proclaim as a truth of God is we got nothing till we have Jesus. And this morning, I want to ask you, what's in the way of you having more Jesus? Have a conversation with your spouse. Have a conversation with a friend. Have a conversation with someone that's sitting next to you that says, I recognize that this may be something I need to put aside so I can have more Jesus, or this is something I want to add to my life so I can have more Jesus. Maybe you want to come forward today to say, I need the prayers of the church because I need more, I want more Jesus, and I need y'all to travel that journey with me. Maybe you recognize that your life needs to be immersed in the blood of Christ so that it can become part of the treasures that are heavenly and not part of the things that you hold on to in this earth. Whatever it may be, this song is a time for us to think about that question. What's in the way of me having more Jesus? We're going to stand. If you'd like to come forward to ask for anything that we could help with, don't hesitate to do so. If you're online with us, we have a number there. You can go on and stand up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's a number there, and you're welcome to send us a message, and we'll start that conversation. But let's sing together. Lord, take my life.